Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Future of Education, the vision of Mary McLeod Bethune. Please welcome the president of the Heritage Foundation, Dr. Kevin Roberts. Thanks for being here for this important event. It is initiated ostensibly by the putting in the Capitol, the placement in the Capitol of a wonderful statue, of a wonderful patriot, Mary McLeod Bethune, yesterday as one of the representatives historically of the great state of Florida. And I can tell you, not just as the president of the Heritage Foundation, but as someone, as you might know, who spent a lot of time in education, including founding my own school and sort of refounding a college, that Bethune is, for those of us who are educators, one of the luminaries in American education history. So not only should the people of Florida be very proud of her and her legacy, but all of us as Americans should be very proud. And of course, you have to account for my bias here as the president of the Heritage Foundation as I think about my colleague, fellow educator and education policy person, Lindsey Burke, who will be moderating the panel. Think about my friends who will be on the panel and who will be introduced soon, that I can be very proud as a movement conservative that this topic, that legacy, the future of American education is our story for those of us who are on the center right. I mean that not at all, actually, as a partisan comment, but as a comment about good schools being focused on objective truth and good schools being focused on the most important part of a school, which is students. And in American education policy, because in American schools, over the last two generations, we spend too little time making good decisions and good policy that are the best for the students. And so we here at Heritage, as you know, our friends across the movement look forward to the day soon when every single dollar will follow every child so that their families can send them to the school of their choice and so that we can end the disgusting, evil, unjust practice of having to go to school to the one that's in your zip code. It is entirely un-American and it is unjust. That's not hyperbole because I can tell you having had the privilege of not just being a school administrator, but a teacher of students from wealthy backgrounds and not wealthy backgrounds, that the most beautiful thing of this beautiful republic is the moral obligation we feel to educate every child to give them equal opportunity. And because of really poorly intentioned practices and policies, we're not doing that in this country. But the good news is, with the legacy of people like Mary McLeod Bethune, thinking about the private girls' school she started in Daytona Beach, which of course became one of the great historically black universities in this country, Bethune-Cookman University, we have inspiration that all of us, regardless of what we look like, what political party we belong to, where we live, should take. And so this panel, I think, will really put an exclamation point on the timelessness of her legacy. One of the great patriots of our age, and I do mean that, is a member of the U.S. House. He represents the 19th District in Florida. He's been in the House since 2016. He is someone that 
those of us at Heritage who are focused not just on education policy, but on really anything in terms of, of common sense, can look to for a cheerful but very realistic analysis of the state of things. And so Congressman Byron Donalds, I think, not only lives out this legacy of Miss Bethune, but is someone that all Floridians and all Americans should be proud of. It is a great, great honor to welcome him here to the Heritage Foundation. Congressman. Well, first of all, it's always a pleasure to be here at Heritage. Um, it's my honor, especially to get off the hill as often as I can, where logic reigns instead of insanity. Um, second thing, just to acknowledge my wife, who you'll get the chance to talk to a little bit later. I'll hear from her later, um, my wife, Erica. It's always great to see you, even though we're... It's weird in D.C. sometimes you're passing in the wind, even though you're married. You're like, it's like oh, hey, it's good to see you. Okay, I got to go. Bye. I'll see you later. Um, but really, we're, we're here in the nation's capital really at a, at a great time, uh, not just in uh, Florida's history, but America's history. Because uh, yesterday we had the ability to truly honor uh, one of the great pioneers um, of our country. And um, as a black American, one of the great pioneers uh, for black people in American history. Uh, Mary McLeod Bethune's life is a story that, couldn't have been, that could have only been written in America. Um, she was born to former slaves. Mary rose from the cotton fields of South Carolina to become a confident and trusted advisor to our nation's top government officials, dedicating her life to ensuring racial equality, expanding educational opportunity for minority children, and championing women's rights. Mary's legacy leaves behind a poignant message of hope, persistence, and refusing to be defined by societal standards. As an inspiration to a nation, Mary's desire to invoke change in her community would not only change the way we view education in America, but race as well. Opening the Daytona Literary, Literary and Industrial Institute for Negro Girls with just $1.50. Now this was a time in America where you could do things with $1.50. We wish we could do things today with $1.50. But her faith in God and a dream, Mary's tireless and tenacious service reduced educational disparities for black Americans and encouraged the pursuit of academia for young girls across the state of Florida. Realizing the transformative power of education, Mary McLeod Bethune refused to accept the status quo for herself and the next generation of black Americans. In 1923, the merger of her school in Daytona with the Cookman Institute created the co-ed Bethune-Cookman College, or how it's affectionately referred to in the state of Florida, BCC. As a, as, a, as a Rattler and a Seminole, somebody who first started his educational career at FAMU on the highest of seven hills in Tallahassee, you know, those Bethune-Cookman College Wildcats were a rival of ours, still a rival of ours, but, but highly respected at all times. This union would revolutionize the overarching standard of post-secondary education for black Americans and cement Mary's reputation as a respected and profound leader, leader within black education. The significance of Mary McLeod Bethune being the first black American to, forever, to be forever memorialized in the National Statuary Hall collection is not lost on me. 
As just one of two black Republicans serving in Congress and the first black American to represent my district, I bear the responsibility of carrying the torch so future generations can excel far beyond me, just like Mary McLeod Bethune. I think it's important to note that um, I was in the Florida House when we voted for Mary McLeod Bethune to stand in Statuary Hall. So to actually be at the unveiling yesterday was actually a special moment for me. I was with a couple of my colleagues uh, from the Florida legislature, and we actually had to remind ourselves that, oh, yeah, we voted for this. So to actually have been a member of the state legislature and vote for it, and then to be a member of Congress when her statue was unveiled uh, was was truly one of the one of the more special moments in, in my life. And if you ever get close enough to the statue, the way they did this was remarkable. Like her her face is pitched down. So when you stand next to the statue and you look up, the way they carved her eyes and the level of detail, it's as if she's looking right at you. And she has this like grin on her face. And this is the grin uh, that basically every uh, black child in, Amer- in America knows all too well. And it's the grin of, baby, I have so much promise for you. And also, baby, you better act right or I'm going to take my cane and come after you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually a great, it's a great, it's a, it's a great statue. My hope is that the statue serves as not just a message of hope um, and the power of recognizing one's voice, but that we are one body, one people, one nation, forever in the pursuit of a more perfect union. In reverence to Mary's own words, I leave you with this, and I quote, our aim must be to create a world of fellowship and justice where no man's skin, color, or religion is held against him. Mary McLeod Bethune standing in Statuary Hall representing the great state of Florida is not just an honor for my state, it's truly an honor for our nation. She was a pioneer when being a pioneer was not only hard, it it was persecuted. But she stood strong anyway because she believed in the future of all Americans and she believed in what America could be. And her her standing legacy will always be that education is the pathway forward for success of all children in the United States. And it's something that Um, Not only have I championed, my colleagues back in Florida have championed, the people that you're going to hear from today have championed, um, but that is the legacy that I believe that we need to continue to build on top of the legacy that Mary McLeod Bethune gave us through all of her hard work um, throughout her time on this great earth. So it's my pleasure to be here with you today. Um, It's truly an honor to speak at, at such a time in our country where we've honored such a tremendous woman. So thank you. Well, thank you, Congressman Donalds. Those were really uh, inspirational remarks. And what a story to have been in the Florida House and voted on Mary McLeod Bethune being uh, in Statuary Hall to actually seeing it unveiled in person. Just a great story. I'm Lindsay Burke. I direct our Center for Education Policy here at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm thrilled to welcome an excellent panel today. And in fact, feel free to, to come on up. I'm going to read some very abridged uh, biographies of each of our panelists so we can get right into a conversation with them today. 
about the legacy of Mary McLeod Bethune. So I'll start on the far end there. William Maddox currently serves as the director of the J. Stanley Marshall Center for Educational Options at the James Madison Institute in Florida. In this role, he works with a wide variety of researchers, policymakers, educators, and parents to promote innovative reforms designed to make it possible for all K-12 students to obtain high-quality education tailored to their unique needs, interests, aptitudes, and learning styles. Next, we have Erica Donalds. She is the founder of the Optima Foundation and serves as its president and chief executive officer. She's a finance professional with a passion for education and has offered her expertise in business, regulatory, compliance, and finance to help further the expansion of high-quality school choice options and to improve accountability and governance in Florida's public schools. She also runs uh, Naples Classical Academy, a classical charter school in Florida. Mrs. Donalds was elected to the Collier County School Board in 2014, and in 2018, she was appointed by Governor, then Governor-elect, Ron DeSantis, to serve on his administration's Transition Advisory Committee for Education and Workforce Development. And then we will hear from Ian Rowe, and I say hear from, we're going to have a moderated conversation all together at once. But Ian Rowe, good friend, is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on education and upward mobility, family formation, and adoption. Mr. Rowe is also the co-founder of Vertex Partnership Academies, a network of uh, charter-based international baccalaureate high schools opening in the Bronx this fall in 2022. The chairman of the board of Spence Chapin, a nonprofit adoption services organization, and the co-founder of the National Summer School Initiative. He concurrently serves as a senior visiting fellow at the Woodson Center and a writer for the 1776 Unites campaign. So without further ado, we will get right into it. And kick it off, I think, with Bill. We got some great framing remarks from both Congressman Donald and uh, Dr. Robert about Mary McLeod Bethune's legacy. But let's delve into that a little more. I mean, this is something that you've studied and thought about for a long time. You've been involved with the unveiling. So why, why now? Why are we basing this conversation today around her legacy? Well, I think as others have mentioned earlier, she was an extraordinary woman, an extraordinary educator, had a real passion for all children and perhaps especially those that were denied opportunities in her day and was as was indicated with that dollar fifty that she used to start her school was extremely resourceful um, and kind of took agency and said hey I want to do something I see a problem I want to do something about it and um, was very successful at it others saw that recognized it came and and um, invested in her school and helped her succeed and it's a story, her story is one that I think particularly uh, inspires our organization, our, our organization's founder, Stan Marshall, whose center I now have the privilege of um, directing. Uh, Dr. Marshall was, a, uh, was an educator, former university president, served for a number of years on the board of trustees at Bethune-Cookman. And so I had some sense that he you know, held Mary McLeod Bethune in high esteem as, as many of us in Florida do. But I got a real feel for it one day when he asked me to come and meet with him in his office and we had just moved to a new building. And I walked in and along the line on the outer rim of the office were all sorts of plaques and photographs and awards that he had received throughout his life that were waiting for an interior decorator to come and to hang. 
But there was one item that was so important to Dr. Marshall that he had taken the time to hang himself, uh, to hang it himself. And that was a, a portrait of Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune that he put right behind his uh, desk there in his office. And so in some ways that kind of captures the esteem that we hold her in. And I think it's appropriate that we are here today doing this. And I, my hat's off to you guys here at Heritage for hosting this event, because I, um, I, I think it's fitting and appropriate a, a day after uh, her statue was unveiled yesterday in the U.S. Capitol. But it's also, I think, fitting because we are within a month now of the U.S. Supreme Court's uh, affirmation or reaffirmation of the idea that it is entirely appropriate for states to say to parents, if you wish to take the per-pupil funds that have been set aside for your child and to direct them to a school of your choice, including a school that has a religious orientation, you are free to do so. And um, that is something that, that, that we care an awful lot about. We want parents to enjoy the whole panoply of options, including faith-based education should they want it. And when people object to that idea, because it is an idea that sometimes uh, invites hostility, I, I, I remind them then that if you hold a position against that idea, you're in effect saying that we ought to be discriminating against schools like the one that Mary McLeod Bethune started. Great, thank you, Bill. Well, Erica, speaking of schools, you run one and have a, a real network that's expanding. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how does that, I guess, fit into the vision that Bethune has? Sure, it's, that's what's so exciting about celebrating her and celebrating her coming from the great state of Florida, which we like to refer to as the school choice state, although we've got some really good competition now, especially <laughs> with the state of Arizona. Bill and I will be uh, nagging our, our legislature about that in the coming years, um, hopefully one year, right? Uh, but celebrating the fact that she did take the agency to start a school because she saw and recognized, and obviously there were parents as well that recognized that there was not a school option that was going to help those young girls succeed and thrive in their lives. And unfortunately, here many decades later, we have parents who are still in the same situation. Uh, despite the innovations that have occurred in so many other areas, we're still stuck with majority of parents having just one option for their kids that is very much a one-size-fits-all situation in the traditional public school system. Uh, and I found that for myself, that even though, just like many middle-class families, I bought a home in a nice little box that says, if I live here and pay this premium for this home, my kids are going to go to a great school, they're going to get a great education, and they're going to thrive. Uh, with three boys who are all very different, it didn't turn out that way. The first one did well, and the second one, it was like square peg, round hole, this is never going to work, and the public school system threw up their hands and said, there's nothing else we can do. And I looked around and thought, well, I spent all my money on this house, so I can't afford private school, and, and started talking to my friends and my neighbors and found that many of them were in the same situation. And so I did run for school board hoping to make some changes to address the concerns of parents, found that after four years, maybe that's not the most <laughs> efficient place to uh, make changes. Uh, coming from the business world, yeah, I was very um, surprised, maybe a bit naive at the slow pace of government, certainly the bureaucracy of public schools. Uh, so when I left there, I decided to basically start my own school district and, and quickly put up schools in areas where there is not enough school choice and that there is a demand. And we're now serving 
as of this fall, 3,000 students in our, our four brick and mortar schools, but we have 2,500 kids on waiting lists and we cannot build these schools fast enough. And that's why we also started what we believe is gonna become the, the platinum standard in virtual and distance learning education that's also going to empower parents to be able to start their own learning pods, start their own micro schools, empower teachers who want to teach a, in a different way to start their own pods and micro schools and serve their communities. I mean, eventually we know that, that and Heritage has been a great support of this, we need complete education freedom so every parent can customize the academic experience that's gonna help their children the most. And thankfully, we're on a trajectory there, but in my opinion, certainly not fast enough. Yeah. Well, that's great, and I wanna circle back uh, shortly to your schools, but you said something really important in case anybody missed it, but not only did you start a school, you started a school district. <laughs> that's, that's really impressive. Well, Ian, this word, agency, has now oh. been invoked by two out of three panelists, and I, I think you might have something to say about that. Yes. So can you talk a little bit? I mean, Mary McLeod Bethune, you know, her whole idea was agency starts first with the individual, right? She founded a school for $1.50, but you have to start with the individual adult in order to be able to serve students. So what do you think? How, how does agency play out in sure. your mind? And I know you have a four-point plan. I, I do have a four-point <laughs> plan. So uh, first of all, it's, it's a great honor uh, to be here, as you mentioned, you know, I'm starting a new network of uh, international baccalaureate high schools. But for the last decade, I ran a network of elementary and middle schools. And similarly, we, you know, we had 2,000 students, primarily uh, low-income kids in the heart of the South Bronx and the Lower East Side of Manhattan. But we had nearly 5,000 families every single year, you know, desperate for the opportunity to send their kid to a great school. And and the reason I run schools, I'm sure the reason that you launched your school is that we want kids to know that they can do hard things, right? That there are pathways to success, even in the most uh, challenging situations. And what's so uh, refreshing about um, uh, Mary Bethune's approach is that she had this huge focus on self-sufficiency and this idea of agency. Um, and it'd be so interesting to transport her to present day, because I feel like there's a, an existential battle between this idea of agency and what's really dominant in K-12 education today, which is equity. You know, where equity is, is um, this idea that if there are differences in outcomes by certain identity groups, those differences must be due to discrimination within that group. And in order to achieve equity, you've got to have equal outcomes among these groups and oftentimes that yields lower standards or, you know, the governor of Oregon just, you know, passed a law that says you no longer even need to uh, demonstrate proficiency in reading and math in order to graduate from high school in the name of equity to help kids of color, you know? Um, and so this, this mindset is really dominant and I think we almost need to have a, a refresh of this idea of agency. And yes, I've just written a, a book about it this idea of how do you get more and more young people to understand the power that they do have and that they aren't alone in carving out their pathway to success. So I've, I have uh, you know, my own definition of agency is the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment where you've got, you know, everyone has the ability to make decisions. The question is how, what's your framework for doing so. And I think that framework is heavily influenced by the local institutions around you. And the ones that I feel are most important are family, religion, education. If you got those three, entrepreneurship, 
usually follows. And family is not necessarily the family that you're from, it's about the family that you form. So if many people are familiar with something called the success sequence, that's data that says, if you just finish your high school degree, get a full-time job of any kind, just so you learn the dignity and discipline of work, and if you have children, marriage first, 97% of millennials who follow that series of behaviors avoid poverty. We should be teaching that in school, not as a prescriptive, but as a descriptive to say that you're going to be the decision maker in your own life. And this is information. There are different rewards or consequences associated with different series of life decisions. Lest entrust and empower young people to know that those decisions are within their grasp with these outcomes. Religion, not dictating a particular religion, but helping young people understand the power of a faith commitment. You see such high levels of isolation, loneliness in many, many kids, but in many young people who have adopted a faith commitment, those numbers are dramatically different. Education, I think all of us stand for this idea of freedom of choice. Free choice exists for a lot of, a lot of middle and upper class folks in our, in our country, but not for the kids who are most vulnerable, who need the ability to choose a great school. And if all those things are in place, if you've got a strong family that you've formed, strong faith commitment, strong education, you usually have the ability to be more of an informed risk taker. And this whole idea of become an entrepreneurial spirit. So I think those are, um, those are the elements I think uh, Mary McLeod Bethune would, would support in her idea of agency as a counterbalance to this idea of equity, which in some ways erases the role of the individual and always forces us to look at the level of identity group. Well said, and now everybody's going to want to buy your book. So what's the full, <laughs> the full title is Agency. Well, it's agency, you know, those one word punchy titles, um, but empowering the rising generation to overcome the victimhood narrative and discover your own pathway to power. Great. Well, Bill, we had chatted about this a little bit, but, you know, when we're talking about Bethune's legacy and, of course, the need to make sure that those children who have been the most underserved by the traditional system, assignment by zip code, government-run system of education, those kids clearly need an exit option. But there is this tension now, and even among friends and allies in the school choice movement between, you know, do we go big and bold and universal, or should these programs remain targeted? Or are they more effective that way? So I know this is sort of getting into the policy weeds a bit, but can you flesh that out a little bit for us? Yeah, now this has been a tension, and I think in some ways a fitting one, because we, we want to see all kids thrive. We have a special concern for those that have the greatest obstacles or um, have encountered the greatest disadvantages. And when you were talking earlier, Erica, about you know, district lines and how that can so often affect the, your fate, I think that is particularly true for those that um, often live in areas that um, uh, now have Title I funding or qualify for it and don't have options beyond um, just their local public school. So th this is a tension that, that exists. And whenever we come to this topic, I'm reminded of something that happened to me not long after I joined JMI. I went to this conference down in Miami that was hosted by uh, Hispanic CREO, uh, Education um, Reform Group. And there was a gentleman there who came from New York, and he uh, addressed a group. And he said, look, I have come and studied what you guys have done in Florida, and I, my hat's off to you. You've been pioneers. You've been leaders. You've, got, you know, you've, taken, you've taken the school choice ball and run with it further than anyone else. But he said, I've got to tell you, when I go back to New York, I'm going to advocate for something a little bit different than what you've done. Because you've focused almost exclusively on low-income populations for good reason. 
But when I go back and talk with folks in New York, I want to be sure that we expand the um, uh, eligibility far beyond just the low-income community, because I'm convinced that even if you care only about the poor, the best thing that you can do for poor families who otherwise don't enjoy options is to have them in a larger coalition that includes um, more affluent families who care about education uh, just as uh, these poor families do. And he said, back in New York, we have a lot of Catholic um, school families, a lot of um, Jewish school families that want opportunities beyond those that the district provides. And I want to bring those folks into coalition with those in low-income communities that uh, need these opp opportunities. So that story's always kind of stuck with me as a good reason for us to move toward what I think is the, the best standard anyway, which is a universal option for everyone. But, it, and, but, but embracing universal ESAs, education savings accounts, which is the goal that we have in Florida going forward, um, does not mean that you can't continue to have a special concern for those in low-income um, situations. And so in Florida, when we first started with Governor Bush back in the early uh, uh, 2000s, um, talked about his A-plus plan for education reform. And we think it's time now for a new A-plus plan in our state. And what we want to see is universal education savings accounts for everyone. That's the A. And then we want weighted funding for those that live in disadvantaged areas that would qualify for Title I funding or would be what might be thought of, I know our, I see our friend uh, uh, Bart Danielson from NC State in the uh, audience, he's done some really great work on this, um, directing weighted funding toward those that would be in, in economic development zones or ed zones that might benefit um, even more by having these sorts of opportunities. And that I think would not only help to provide better schooling options for students, but I think it would have, and Bart's research I think shows this, it would have a transformative effect often on neighborhoods and neighborhood composition and would bring more people into the community that would serve as role models of that success sequence so that it's not just content that you learn about in the classroom, but that there are visible examples in the neighborhood of people who have followed the success sequence and have um, reaped the results. Um, there's a story in our uh, city, Tallahassee, like this, that's really inspirational of this um, uh, young black family, graduated from Florida A&M, bought a starter home in uh, uh, an area of town that was more affordable, envisioned moving to a better school district once the kids got to be of age, uh, but they started having kids, were very family-oriented, and um, decided to remain there in their community because they saw that many of their neighbors looked to them and for help and that they were a kind of, um, um, they were highly invested in the, in the neighborhood. So much so that at one point, one of their, um, one of the young uh, ladies in the neighborhood um, had a child that uh, she could not care for herself and literally left it on the doorstep of the Edwards family and said, would you raise this child for me? Um, when I look at their story, I say, boy, I wish not only am I inspired by it, much like I am by Mary McLeod Bethune's story, but I'm, but I'm like, I so wish that we had more families uh, enmeshed in communities like this that could help to raise the opportunities, not just for their own kids, but for uh, their neighbors. So I think in a strange sort of way, school choice not only is great for the educational um, opportunities for young students, but it can have this uh, stimulus, if you will, toward neighborhood transformation 
that I think would reinforce many of the lessons that are being taught at school and, and improve the kind of whole child and the outcomes for the whole child in ways that we would all embrace and get excited about. And may I just, may I just add to that? The, you know, one thing we always have to bear in mind if you think about you know, should choice only be focused on low-income kids, it's still the case that based on 2019 you know, NAEP data, the nation's report card, only 37% of all American kids are reading at grade level. There are a lot of not low-income yes. kids yes. Um, in that population. And, and then also, if you, if you take it to race, in the entire history of NAEP since 1992, since that assessment's been given, you've never had a situation in which more than 45% of white kids or reading at grade level, right? And it's unlikely that factors like systemic racism is the reason that the majority of white students are not reading at grade level, right? So there are lots of reasons that counter the dominant narrative for why choice does need to be more universal you know, for everyone. Right. I have to jump in on this as well because it is such an important policy uh, debate that goes on. In the state of Florida, we've been dealing with this, and I know people deal with it all over, but it also, we were just talking about how important it is to look at the individual and not the collective. You, you said that in your remarks. And, and when you're looking at that collectively, you are forgetting the, the children like my son, who it doesn't matter that 98% of the students in that school are doing great, even if they were, which we know they aren't, because he's not and didn't have an option. And there's so many others like him out there. But from a practical logistical perspective, because I'm on the side of, of the provider side, right? Providing the supply for this demand that we know is out there, both from low income and middle income, especially um, communities as well. Uh, if I'm opening a private school and I have a long list of churches that have reached out to us wanting to open a private school, they hear that there's these scholarships available and can we open a private school that would benefit from these scholarships? And we wanna to put together a program for them. But what we would have to do in a state like Florida is put a chart on our advertising that says, well, if you have four kids and you make $111,000 a year, then you, and if you have five kids, and, and you can't advertise like that. When I open a charter school and I've got 3,000 applications for 900 spots like we did in this past school year, it's because I can advertise to anyone and everyone and say, you're all welcome, it's tuition free, and everyone comes to apply. Like you said, low income all the way through, they're all a common coalition looking for me to open a school in their community. But if we're trying to do that in a private school setting in that type of environment, taking advantage of scholarships, there's no way to tell people that easily that they are eligible for these scholarships. It's too complicated and we need to move it into the realm of it's open to everyone, everyone can apply, and we will have so much more supply and diversity of supply, small, large, urban, suburban, rural, small, religious, non-religious, that's the marketplace that we really need to lift all of the boats and to really bring the equality that these folks are looking for yep. and access that they're looking for uh, when it comes to school choice. Yep, equality, not equity. Exactly. <laughs> well, as you said earlier, Erica, Florida has a fantastic school choice landscape, education savings accounts, tax credit scholarships, vouchers, uh, charter schools, online, they've got it all. Uh, but they're starting to feel a little heat, right? Arizona just got the first in the nation truly universal education choice program. And it's, in my opinion, the best model there is to date in the education savings account version. So there's a, some nice competitive pressure now, I would think, in Florida to, to uh, leapfrog ahead. But can you talk a little bit about your school model? I mean, how, how are you? You're getting around these uh, boundaries, these assignment by zip code boundaries that exist. And 
I don't know, I had the opportunity to experience one of your schools recently, so can you walk everybody through that? Yeah, so when I started this, I fell in love with classical liberal arts education. Uh, we partner with Hillsdale College for our brick and mortar charter schools and they provide a classical model of education. I'm a CPA, I'm not an educator, I'm a business person. What I bring to the table is finance, compliance, I know how to finance these buildings and get them all built, the exciting stuff. all of the yeah. good stuff that, and that way the educators can do what they do best. And so that's my model. But we open these classical charter schools which have virtually no technology in the classroom, and that's what parents are really attracted to. Well, then comes the pandemic, and we had to scramble and buy computers for all of our kids and send them home, and we endeavored to replicate the in-person environment as much as possible in a virtual setting. Uh, so we gave our children live instruction every day from their teacher. We sent home these success kits with paper books and notebooks and workbooks so that those kids could still continue to write and take their notes and uh, had document cameras that they could turn in. So we sought to create the gold standard in distance learning and so that our kids would not miss a beat. And we really did succeed at that, uh, so much so that parents were calling us to participate in our distance learning program uh, when their kids didn't even go to our schools. Uh, that actually gave rise to us uh, to Optima Classical Academy, uh, after the pandemic, we saw a need for a gold standard of virtual education. You know, virtual education is a way to defy these boundaries across the states and across the country. Uh, but it's been traditionally pretty low quality. It really has not performed in the innovative ways that we would like to see. It's been a sort of a last resort for people. Uh, I've been fortunate to partner with a, a gentleman who worked in virtual reality education who also has a degree in the classics. So just the unicorn that I was looking for <laughs> to help me with this. And we've built the world's first virtual reality school that is delivering a liberal arts education uh, for free for students in Florida, anywhere across the state. Our 2,500 on the wait list can access that at home. Uh, and we're working in every state, especially Arizona now, uh, to offer it as a public option there as well. But in virtual reality, these students feel like they're in a traditional classroom. They go to the moon to learn about the lunar landing. The uh, they have 3D models. You know, you have these expensive uh, heart models that you have to pass around the classroom. No, in virtual reality, they all have their own and they can label it and interact with it. And it really is uh, part of the future of education, whether that's distance learning or in person. But we have to be unleashed to uh, find these creative ways to reach students. And without the funding to do that and the freedom to do that and the encouragement to do that uh, by the education system, it's really difficult to do that. But Optima Classical is launching this fall and I, I do believe that there will be demand that results from that, that continues to put pressure on allowing for more of these innovative options, allowing parents to access them in meaningful ways. That's great. Well, I want to turn it over to audience questions, but before we do that, Ian, could you talk to us a little bit about your schools and the model? And well, yeah. So um, in the district in which we're going to be launching uh, uh, this international baccalaureate uh, public charter high school, um, in 2015 of the 2,000 or so students that started ninth grade, four years later, only 7% graduated from high school ready for college, right? Meaning that they, um, they started ninth grade and dropped out, or they actually did earn their high school diploma, but still could not do reading nor math if they were to actually go to high school. And this 
in District 8, it's 2%, you know, and th these are the realities, not only in parts of New York City, but in Chicago and Appalachia, lots of places. Um, and so in many ways, I think high school is the sort of last frontier. Um, there's a lot of work to be done in K-8 to yeah. for sure, but high school is a, is a whole different beast. And in New York, there's a cap mm -hmm. on charter schools. So even if you wanted to um, launch great schools, right now the legislative structure impedes your ability to do so. So uh, the uh, networks that we've partnered with, uh, Public Prep and BRIA, were actually able to extend their charters to get the legal right to run a high school, because they're elementary and middle schools, and now they can uh, run high schools. And so they've selected us as a charter management organization to run this very innovative international baccalaureate model that has within it uh, embedded two different pathways that at the end of your sophomore year, you can actually choose the international baccalaureate diploma model, which is a more traditional college or university pathway, great rigor, um, and of equal stature is also the international baccalaureate careers model, where at the end of your sophomore year, you can choose to um, focus on computer science, healthcare, um, uh, construction slash architecture, or media. Those will be our first uh, four industries. So we're, for example, in discussions with the Mayo Clinic to have a course of study in phlebotomy. Right, so at the end of four years of high school, you can have an industry credential as a phlebotomist. And if you want to, right after high school, go work for a hundred bucks an hour as a phlebotomist, that's a choice that you can have. And I and I think that when we think about high schools in general, we do have to start thinking more broadly about what should be the options that are embedded in a traditional secondary school, because we see college is not necessarily the right answer for all kids. I mean, the president's considering, you know, a trillion dollar give back in stu student loans, which doesn't even solve the underlying problem of, was that even the best choice uh, to begin with? So we think it's very special to create this kind of model that has equal rigor, equal pathways. Um, and there's lots of data that shows for low-income minority kids having the opportunity to earn a credential immediately after high school. You, you get into work, there are higher rates of marriage, lower rates of non-marital birth rates, higher rates of college completion when they ultimately go to school. So we just need kids to have more options and we need high schools to be designed in such a way to, to offer that. And at the end of the day, this is the world robust school choice gives us, right? Exactly. Where you have so many good options. How do I Love choose it. between wouldn't the that, school, the right, working conjunction right. with the Mayo Clinic and the VR class? Yes, the oh my God, I mean, wouldn't that yeah. be the embarrassment <laughs> of riches? Right, Which again, exactly. by the way, exists for many middle and upper class families yeah, already. True. So why not have that exist for, for low income, middle, middle income kids across the country? Well, we'd love to open it up to any questions you have. If you have a question, raise your hand and the mic will come around. We can start right here, Anika. Um, uh, good morning, everybody. My um, name is Delano Squires. Um, my question is this. Uh, how do you see homeschool or homeschooling fitting in, particularly as it relates to ESAs and the school choice model? And the reason I ask is because I think um, school choice can how do I say this? I think there can be limited benefits to school choice if every school has been captured <laughs> and now is basically, you know, um, serving as, you know, a site for political indoctrination of one type or another. Um, my wife and I live in the D.C. area. We decided to pull our daughter out of a uh, charter school in D.C. and homeschool using a classical Christian um, curriculum. And I'm just curious, 
would, would ESAs in, in your mind be you could they be used to help families who make that particular choice? I, I'd like to speak real quick because we hear this a lot from the homeschool community. They don't want ESAs. Right? They're afraid that any government help for homeschooling is going to take away their freedom to do what they want, how they want. And so we do have to be really careful. And I think West Virginia was very intentional about uh, their language to make sure that that wasn't infringed upon. But I believe that school choice and this education freedom we've talked about will also give rise to a better accountability structure that is more diverse. It already has, in some ways, you see the rise of the CLT, the classical learning test. Uh, they've actually applied in Florida to be one of the tests of a list of tests that private schools can utilize in their accountability for scholarships. So a private school, if they're taking public scholarships, those students have to take a test that is reported to the state. But the CLT now has given rise where they could take that test. And I think that that type of expansion of accountability will continue as ESAs and other options continue to expand as well. And we want to see that. I believe in accountability. I, I do believe in, in reporting that kind of data from a transparency perspective. I think that accountability comes through transparency. Parents should know how their student is doing, and then they can make accountability decisions. Um, but I think we do need to be very careful that those who do not want that participation from the government or any of that instruction can continue that freedom. Um, that doesn't mean that you know, we cut it off there because we are allowing for the monopoly to be exactly what you, you stated. Um, so I, I think that there can be room for both. And, and I think that that's right. And you know, it's no longer a hypothetical anymore because we know that it can work out just as Erica described. If we look at Arizona, the first state to enact ESAs, they were, to your point, very intentional about how that law was designed, how homeschoolers are addressed and talked about differently in statute than students who are schooling at home using an ESA, that they are different populations of students. Uh, they were very intentional about saying parents are their children's first and foremost educators. They will drive academic accountability and what that means for them as a family, but have strong, robust taxpayer protections in place. So there, there are ways to do it, and yeah, it's no longer hypothetical. Yeah. And if I can just add one thing, and um, we work pretty closely with some homeschoolers. In fact, just came from a great homeschool convention in Texas, and we see this tension played out a lot. Uh, and it's not, in my mind, that different from the tension that we see in higher ed between those who, like Hillsdale College, have said, we don't want to take any sort of government money lest there be government entanglement and others who say, we want to remain faithful to our vision of education, but recognize that there may be some who would otherwise not be able to get it without some sort of um, economic assistance. They're taxpayers. They ought to be able to access funds that they have paid for through their taxes. I'm encouraged to see that more and more people in the homeschooling world are seeing the benefit of this kind of two-way street of giving opportunity for those who want to adopt a more Hillsdale-like, no-strings-attached mode to do so, while making room for those who would otherwise not be able to do so, who want to take advantage of homeschooling. And laws like the one that you cite that make those two groups distinct in law, even though oftentimes at the, at the ground level, parents just think of themselves as educating and don't make these distinctions that we do in the policy world, I'm encouraged. I think that we're seeing... Um, uh, 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 a kind of thousand, let a thousand flowers bloom sort of mentality take root, and that I think is a really good thing. Yeah, I mean, what I found interesting about your question, when I say school choice, I just assume that includes homeschool. Yes. Mm -hmm. you know, so it's interesting. So we all in the movement should think about that. If there's a 
whole community of people that hear school choice and suddenly feel like that's an oppositional as opposed to inclusive. I mean, post-COVID, we have to solve this problem. I think in the black community, the Census Bureau showed data like the interest in, in the black community of homeschooling went from like 7% to 16%. Yes. These are massive numbers, and we want school choice to be viewed as, as an option. And to the degree that, I mean, I haven't really heard that as much, but that's interesting. We're even accessing government funds doesn't need to have to be a component of that. Um, seems like that's another important element. Hello, my name's Wilma. I'm a candidate for town council in Sweden. What we're seeing a lot in Sweden right now is that we have instituted school choice since the 90s. But a problem we're seeing with it is that many schools are seeing many of the more academic students um, leave them for other, mainly charter schools, leaving these schools with very academically challenged students, um, leading to what you could call a death spiral for many of these schools, uh, with results deteriorating and deteriorating. How should free, well, schools... Um, how do we make sure that these schools are able to keep up education standards so we do not make, uh, essentially create too high concentrations of academically challenged students in certain schools? I'm, I'm curious, what's the uh, governing authority? Because for those schools that are doing well, fantastic, and they're attracting kids, that's phenomenal. If there are schools that are underperforming, there should be some kind of um, accountability structure that's providing resources for some period of time and if it doesn't work out then there should be another solution for that school i mean that's that's part of the reality we as you know people who run public charter schools have to live under that you don't just have the right to just run a school and if and you can't and you can't blame it like oh the the, the good kids are going here and we're just left with the bad kids and so therefore you know you know sad you know sad for them there has to be some accountability. So I, I would really be curious as to what's, what's the governance structure to ensure that that situation doesn't persist. I mean, that's what goes on in our schools for more of the traditional district schools. That, that you know, that, those numbers I shared earlier, like 2% and 7%, that's existed for generations because there is no accountability structure to force that to change. But the data doesn't support that happening either. In, in the United States, at least, when uh, there is additional school choice options, it actually shows that the vast majority of time it increases performance of the schools that were previously underperforming. So I hear that a lot when we go into new communities, that that's what's going to happen. But the data doesn't play that out at all. And I agree with you, do better or close. I mean, get, the, get these kids out of there, right? If they're not performing, if they can't work with what they have, then they shouldn't be open, just like a charter school would not continue to be open. And that's what true uh, education freedom uh, has to also include. It has to include, I love it when my, my public school friends say, we want the charter schools to have the same accountability as the public schools. And I say, yes, we should do that both ways. <laughs> yeah, so that exactly. when you're failing for two years, you also have to close. And I would be more years. than happy yeah. to have uh, the same accountability across the board. Bill, did you want to add anything? Well, just that Florida is a good example of the very thing that you were just saying, is that since we've adopted school choice broadly, we've seen um, a rising tide lift all boats. And both those that have gone to new schools have benefited, but many of those that remained in public schools have, uh, continue, have performed better because those schools are now in competition with others and are offering a better education as a result. We've seen some dramatic results, really, among some of our district school kids in part because of the influence of school choice and the competition 
that it has provided. And not every charter school is a good school. That's right. You know, and not every district school is a bad school. Right. Right. There just should be accountability across the board that ensures kids have great options, period, regardless of type of school. Uh, Tori Snow, Baltimore, Maryland. Um, my question is, I do a lot of broadcasting and focusing on issues in Baltimore City. Anyone that pays attention to issues knows that Baltimore City is just, we're dealing with a lot. Um, Bethune-Cookman is important because my grandfather only had daughters. And because of that, my parent, my mother and her sisters were able to go to Bethune-Cookman College. And in our family, my dad taught me my work ethic. My mom educated us right through the public school system. And I attribute a great deal of my academic success to the dedication of my parents, to their commitment to education and to their own you know, education status. In Baltimore City, it's an extremely different story. There are a lot of parents that do not have that foundation. And the frequent rebuttal that I get all the time on the air is, well, what about the parents? What about the kids that don't have parents that care? And the reality is that school choice models do benefit students that have engaged parents. So how do you speak to a community that does not have a foundation, whether it's an emotional, psychological, or even an education foundation, to even properly guide their children through an education process in an environment that relies heavily on their intervention like school choice? Thank you. Great question. Miami-Dade County, one of the largest school districts in the entire country, right? And, and majority uh, disadvantaged students in the, in the county as well. 75% of the students in that county go to a school outside of their zoned public school, right? So that means that if given the choice, and, and of the public school uh, districts, Miami-Dade has done the best job in allowing their, their magnet schools. I mean, they're still government-owned schools, but they have outside of your zone options. And 75% of families have made that choice. So let's say that's the cap. That's the most that will choose outside of their traditional public school. That's a huge number. So I think even if, it, if the number were 25% of parents that don't care, I don't think it's that high. Um, I think that there's still people in Miami-Dade County that are stuck where they are or, and they might make another choice. But even if that were the cap, wow, 75% would make an active choice outside of where they're just assigned to. And I think that's enough to make a convincing argument that we should give them that opportunity across the board. Totally. And, you know, I run schools part of the South Bronx where people might say what you just did. Like, how are these parents going to decide? They've got so many issues. I've never met a parent who doesn't want something right. better for their own child, right. you know, and is willing to do the work to find a great school if it can be made accessible to them. Katie, last question. And I will mention for those in the audience, we do have copies of Ian's book in the um, hallway for whoever's interested. Oh. So this comes well, from, you. Yes. <laughs> um, this comes from our <laughs> online audience. Uh, how do we overcome the obstacles to expanding school choice so that more states can follow Arizona's lead and truly empower all parents to make the right education decisions for their kids? Courage. Yes. Courageous leadership, yeah. you know, um, and, and not to listen to the gatekeepers, but listen to the people themselves. You know, the, the thing in New York, you know, when, like, for example, when Bill de Blasio was going to become mayor, he, you know, he came in, guns blazing, I'm going to shut down the charter schools, I'm going to start charging rent. And, you know, we were able to mobilize 17,000 family members to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge to say, come on. <laughs> you got to give us a shot. you give, you got to give our kids a shot. And I think the more that we have courageous leaders that really listen to the people themselves, 
It's like all these other things, like defund the police. You know, like, like all these slogans that don't actually represent the interests of the very people that we're really talking about. But we need courageous leaders to stand up for that. I would agree. I mean, it, elections matter. We really need to be involved early on in, in elections and getting people elected that are willing to make these tough decisions, regardless of whether you have thousands of people marching across bridges. Like, what is the right thing to do that is going to change generations of, of children, students, families, and improve our country long term? We all know, at least those around here, uh, this uh, uh, roundtable, many in the audience, we know what those decisions are. And many of these legislators know what the decisions are, whether they vote that way or not. But it does take courage to do the right thing at the time that it needs to be done, which is, of course is now or yesterday. Um, and it shouldn't take thousands of people marching across bridges. It shouldn't, it shouldn't take all of that. Um, but that's what the opposition does. So that's why we feel like we need to do that. Um, but there are courageous leaders who are willing to go and do it regardless of how many voices there are in opposition. They're willing to make that the thing they do that changes the world um, because they were there. And if they win again or they don't win again is, is not as relevant. And those are the type of people that you need in office, not the ones who need to stay and need to get to the next level. And, um, yeah, and the politicians to. I like. But <laughs> one of the things we found in Florida is that if you do the right thing, you will be rewarded at the ballot box. A lot of people um, may have, I don't know, so, exactly. Some may have missed this story, but if you go back to the 2018 governor's race, it was very narrowly decided where DeSantis beats Andrew Gillum, who, by the way, he was a mayor of our city in Tallahassee a very impressive, I mean, political athlete of, of, of just an incredibly gifted politician, all right? DeSantis wins narrowly. Why does he win? Because 100,000 African-American women chose to vote for DeSantis over a, a black Democrat who um, uh, would have been the first black governor of our state. And the reason they did is because Gillum, DeSantis's opponent, made the mistake of listening to the traditional gatekeepers and believing that these issues did not matter. And these women said, we have scholarships. We have charter school, uh, our kids in charter schools. We like the opportunities that our kids are getting. And we like them not just for academic reasons. This is another problem that sometimes occurs with listening to gatekeepers is because the conversation can only be focused sometimes on academic considerations. Many of these um, uh, mothers were like, we like the fact that our schools, you know, that we send them to through school choice, offer a greater sense of order and discipline and, and religious instruction and safety and all sorts of other considerations that oftentimes the traditional gatekeepers kind of dismiss. So they turn out and they did it only in this race. In the, if you look at the polling data nationwide, how African-American women voted, um, you know, much, much, much uh, lower percentages. Even African-American men in the governor's race, much lower. But in that particular race, and it was all because of school choice, and we would not have Governor DeSantis if it weren't for those courageous school choice moms. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Erica. Thank you, Bill. Fantastic discussion. I want to thank Congressman Donalds again and Dr. Kevin Roberts for opening us today. And thank you all for being here. Really enjoyed the conversation. Join me in giving our panelists a round of applause.